And uh, Pastor Gordon has already uh, read uh, the larger uh, section that has to do with Christmas in Luke chapter 2. And I just want to focus in on a single uh, verse in, in my reading this morning, and that is Luke chapter 2, uh, verse 11. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would use it to speak to us today and that you would give us the supernatural capacity to hear your voice in our lives through your word. And we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. This morning, I want to take a look and examine just a single verse or single word in verse 11, and it is the word Savior. And Christmas is a celebration of the birth of a Savior. It is not the celebration of the uh, birth or the gift of a lawyer or a politician or a military leader or a philosopher, or a scientist, or an economist, or an entertainer, or an athlete, nor even supremely uh, the birth uh, of, in Jesus, a great moral teacher, or merely a great miracle worker, or a great prophet, or a great moral example. The fact of the matter is that when God looks at mankind as a whole, and when He looks at us individually, he recognizes that the single greatest need that we have in our lives is for a Savior. And the strength of that word Savior is not accidental. It is not incidental by uh, the Holy Spirit. God isn't using it for just kind of hyperbole or for some kind of being melodramatic to get our attention. The word is used in order to express danger to express urgency to us, and, and it's important that they do. I think that sometimes we can use words after a while within a culture and even within our own lives as Christians. We can use words like save or savior or salvation until over time they completely lose their impact. They lose the impact that they're intended to always uh, have in our lives. But the words save and savior should produce within our minds uh, images that are appropriate to it. Images of uh, a man drowning, images of a man caught in a uh, burning building or a burning automobile. It is people like that that are in need of saving. They're not in need of a speech. They're not in need of a, a little direction in life. They're not in need of a little helping hand. Uh, they're not in need of a, 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 a sermon, but they're in need of saving. So apparently, from the vantage point of heaven, each of us is in some kind of a danger, a great danger, uh, a life-threatening danger that we need to be saved from. Well, that then raises the question, what exactly do we need saving from? After all, no one can really appreciate the gift of a Savior unless we know exactly 
what He has come to save us uh, from. And so Jesus came into the world, among other things, to save us from the emptiness and the frustration that life is apart from a relationship with God, to deliver us from a life uh, that is meaningless and uh, and, uh, without purpose. And since we've been created for relationship with God, until we are engaged in that relationship we've been created for, there will always be an emptiness in our life. There will always be a sense that there must be something more to life than I have experienced. Because there is something more to life than I have experienced, and that is the very thing that we've been created for, and that is a relationship uh, with uh, God. And as people all over the world run from one thing to another, one occupation to another, one get-rich-quick scheme to another, uh, one hobby to another, one fad to another. We live in the fad capital uh, country of the world. One relationship to another, even one religion or philosophy to uh, another. All of it is a testimony uh, to this emptiness. It's been very well said that each and every one of us are born into the world with a cross-shaped hole within our hearts, that it is possible to pour the entire world into that hole and never fill it and never satisfy it. Only God can. Only He can satisfy that need and fill that emptiness. We all come to know the Lord and make Jesus our Savior for a under the weight of a lot of different emotions or circumstances or whatever it might be. This was the one that got me. And that was just the emptiness and frustration and the meaninglessness of life as I saw it as a young man in my early 20s. And it had accomplished some things that were no big deal, but they were a big deal for me. And I looked at it and I thought, if this doesn't satisfy, then I know that simply upgrading all of these experiences and all of these accomplishments won't bring any satisfaction either. And life, it seemed to me, was just this great kind of uh, joke. It was a, a, a place of cruelty without understanding what in the world is the meaning of life, what we're aiming at, uh, much less how uh, to, to get there. And God saves us from that purposelessness, that ultimate lack of meaning in our life. Jesus came to save us from a life of loneliness. It's amazing how lonely we can feel uh, in a crowd. It's amazing how lonely people are in a world that is filled with seven billion other people. And it's an epidemic, and it's a crisis. And it's as real a crisis in people's lives as any kind of physical disease that we might get. It has become such a crisis in the United Kingdom, in England, that just a couple of years ago, they put a, made for the first time, and I don't know how long, they put a, established a new member of the cabinet, uh, and, and, they, and their responsibility is to deal with loneliness in the United Kingdom. It's not because they don't lack people uh, or access to people for relationship, uh, but the fact of the matter is, again, 
because we've been created for a personal relationship with God, until we are reconciled with God, there will always be a fundamental loneliness in our lives. And it's a loneliness that only He can relieve us of, and it's a loneliness that no other human being can satisfy or fulfill. Again, so often you see people running, uh, and in this culture more than ever in the United States of America in terms of history, running from one relationship to another. And, uh, and then so often making impossible demands upon the person in the relationship, whether a spouse or whatever, not realizing that no human relationship can meet the deep need that I have in my life for a personal relationship with God. And the woman at the well in Samaria, the city of Sychar in John chapter 14, a classic example uh, of it. And here she is, she's been married five times, now she's given up on marriage altogether, and she's living now uh, with a man outside of wedlock, and she's looking to fill a loneliness for God in uh, rapid relationships with men. But again, no person or group of people can ever satisfy our need for a relationship with God. We are lonely because we've been made for a relationship with God, and only He can fill that need in us. Jesus has also come to save us from a life of selfishness. And uh, this uh, selfishness is just uh, uh, put before us and advocated and, and uh, promoted within our culture to uh, such a level and, uh, as if this is some kind of a, a virtue in life or that we can ultimately satisfy ourselves with our own selfishness. But Jesus is a Savior who saves us from ourselves. And living for the big I, me, and my uh, in life, to make that the, uh, the supreme uh, goal within my life, is a disaster. One of the problems with it is that most of us are our own worst enemy, and, uh, and to live for self is a bondage. The fact of the matter is that apart from being indwelt by God as a result of becoming a Christian, this skin uh, constitutes the uh, outward barrier of uh, the, the uh, smallest and tightest prison that exists in all of the universe. And true life is found in living for God supremely and not for ourselves. Jesus taught he said, whosoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will find it. Jesus came to save us from death and also to save us from the fear of death. He came to conquer this great enemy that the Bible speaks of, this enemy called uh, death, and to provide us with everlasting life in the face uh, of death. Paul spoke of the victory that Jesus has brought into human history uh, over death through his resurrection in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 55. 
He said, O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible speaks about uh, people who live all of their life in bondage to the fear of death. There are people who live, and they never live in the present tense of their life, their entire life. They're always preparing for the end, always thinking about death, always uh, uh, giving that, uh, that, that great fear, the great dominant uh, influence within uh, their lives. And the writer of the book of Hebrews uh, described it perfectly, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 15, and to release those who through fear of death were all their lifetimes subject to bondage. And every single thinking person in the world should fear death until we have an answer for it, and not only an answer for it, but a victory over it. And only Jesus can supply us with a, a confidence in the face of death, a victory over death, and he offers that victory to us. And the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He is the only one that is able to give it to us. But the single greatest thing that Jesus was born into the world to do was to save us from our sins. And the angel of the Lord declared to Joseph concerning Mary and the birth of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, he declared, and she shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And so he came into the world to one day die on the cross for our sins, to pay the full and satisfying payment required for the forgiveness of our sins, to then be buried and rise again on the third day as an absolute demonstration of his authority over death, and just as all of the Old Testament prophecies had declared, uh, prophets had declared. And in doing so, he has provided mankind with a salvation uh, over uh, sin, to save us from our sin, to save us from the power of sin presently within a, a person's life. Romans chapter 6, verse 17, Paul speaks to this. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. And maybe you sit here this morning and your life is completely dominated by sin, under the control of sin, and you wonder who can save you from it. And, and you are in your own way in a burning automobile, in your own way in a burning building, needing to be saved from the bondage of sin within your life and wonder who is the Savior that can accomplish that within your life. And uh, Jesus is the one who will deliver you from that 
from that power of sin and give you the ability to live a righteous life. Jesus has also come to save us one day from the very presence of sin in the glory of heaven in that future day. Peter wrote of it in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 11. He said, therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness, and the idea is righteousness alone, dwells. But Jesus has also come to save us from the penalty of our sins, the judgment that our sins deserve, and to provide us with the forgiveness from God himself, and then to free us from the guilt and the condemnation that uh, clings to each of us as sinners, to provide us with the ability to, no matter what our past is, to be able to look back upon our past and not to see all of the sin or the wickedness or all of the things that would bring shame and condemnation into our life and to be hounded and dogged by those things all of our life, but to look back now and see only the blood of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness that is found in Him giving His life upon the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And all of this occurs in a person's life as a miracle of the Holy Spirit. The moment we come to God and we declare to God, God, I believe your assessment of me as a sinner. I've been less than perfect all of my life. And I believe that you are so holy and so perfect and so pure that even one sin could separate me from a relationship uh, with you. And so I choose now to repent of my sin, to put my trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sins, and with that I commit to become one of his followers. And when a person trusts in Jesus for salvation, immediately the Holy Spirit comes into your life. You are born again by the Holy Spirit, and it is the single greatest miracle that anyone can experience uh, in this world. And salvation is given freely to us by God, uh, uh, but always to remember that the salvation is not cheap because it is, is so. Jesus has done not only all of the heavy lifting in our salvation, He has done all of the lifting. And, and if we could add anything to salvation being a gift to us, then it wouldn't be a gift entirely. It would be a gift slash wage. So God takes and he makes this entirely a gift. All it needs to be is received. When somebody gives you a gift at Christmas time, and, uh, or you give a gift to someone and they try to slip you 20 bucks for it, hey, you're ruining the whole thing. It's a gift. You're marring the, the entire thing that I'm wanting to do for you. There's nothing that we can add to it. 
except to receive it. And to receive that salvation is as easy as receiving a gift, a gift from God. Romans chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And why in the world would the Lord do this uh, for us? And, and, and why in the world would both God the Father and the Son be willing to provide this salvation at such an expense to themselves? And it is the love of God, the incomprehensible love of God for us, even in our most sinful state, to be willing to provide in, a, in, in the midst of our greatest rebellion against Him to provide us with a Savior to trust in. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, but God demonstrates His own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Well, if God really sent a Savior at so great an expense to Himself, uh, at, at an unfathomable, immeasurable expense to Himself, and if he did not send a pretend Savior or an empty suit Savior, but if he sent a real Savior, one who has actually uh, been sent to save us from something, then you might guess that there must be very significant consequences associated with rejecting that Savior. And there are. In fact, one might expect that as great as the immediate and eternal blessings are of receiving Jesus Christ as our uh, Savior uh, would be at one end of the spectrum, so great will be the consequences of rejecting Him at the other end of the spectrum. And they are. And God makes no secret of, of either the blessings or the consequences of rejecting Him. And it's important for us to remember as human beings not to view the rejection of this Savior from the vantage point of the ignorance of this world or our own personal ignorance and blindness to our own sinful fallen condition or in the blindness and the ignorance of the, the, the sin and the fallen condition of the world around us. But to instead just to stop and to imagine how that rejection of this Savior is viewed from the vantage point of heaven, from the vantage point of the white-hot, pure, perfect, holy environment of heaven, from the vantage point of a heavenly Father who has said of this Savior, of this Son, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The really big problem with my being a sinner is that there is a penalty associated with it. Again, Romans chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. And that is what my sin warrants in the eyes of God. Death in this life, and then eternal judgment in the life to come. A separation from God uh, in eternity, from all of His attributes, all of His blessings, uh, forever and ever. 
The Bible uh, describes the eternal state of those who reject God's Savior and His salvation as, and, and here we're speaking about uh, hell, talking about uh, Gehenna, which is the eternal lake of fire, and, and the existence of both of those places. And, and the eternal state of those who reject Jesus, God's Savior, it is described as eternal. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7. And to give you uh, who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty ones. In flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. This, etern- this hell is described as the second death. Revelation chapter 2, verse 11. And he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. And the second death refers to the person who dies physically in the condition of being spiritually dead and then entering into eternity separate from God. And to do so is to enter in with a condition that can never be rectified again. It is, will be their eternal condition. It is described as a place of God's wrath and indignation a place of fire, brimstone, and torment. John the Baptist declared concerning it, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Revelation chapter 14, verse 10. Uh, concerning those who receive the uh, worship the beast and his mark, that he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And not merely supremely, When the Bible speaks of hell and uh, the supreme torment of hell has nothing to do with what it is in terms of a torment physically. Uh, It is the the torment of having to live forever without the forgiveness of sins, to live forever uh, without the forgiveness of our wickedness, to live forever uh, with the torment of our decisions in life, and chief, chief among them, my rejection of God's Savior, the torment of knowing that my condition now is completely self-inflicted. All of it was avoidable. And it is described as a place that is shut out from the presence of God, from everything that has to do with God a place that is completely devoid of his nature, his attributes, his goodness, his blessing, his every good and perfect gift. Again, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, and these shall be punished with everlasting destruction. And then here it is, from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. And ultimately what it is that makes hell the 
the hell that it is, is not the fire, it is not the darkness, but it is being shut off from all virtue, all nobility, all goodness, all righteousness, all kindness, all love, everything that is found in God. And imagine the horror of that kind of a place. Even the world that we live in, the attributes of God, the blessings of God, the goodness of God are continually lavished upon this world, even upon those who reject Him. Hell will be an entirely different place. It will be devoid of anything that comes from God. And how can anyone righteously complain concerning all of this. If a person wants nothing to do with God or his son, then they will uh, do without all of the blessings in life that are associated with the Father and the Son. Jesus taught unflinchingly uh, of hell. In fact, it's interesting to realize that he taught more about hell than he taught uh, uh, about heaven. An example of this is Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. He said, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 49. So it will be at the end of the age, Jesus said. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from the just and cast them into the furnace of fire, and there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. And I could quote many more for you. And despite the protests of man, the interesting thing about all of this is that this judgment is just. God's character demands it. God would not be just if he let sin go unpunished and if he did not ultimately bring it to an end. And additionally, if sins were inconsequential in his eyes, it would make Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins completely unnecessary. It would make it completely meaningless. And far from being unjust, this judgment is actually an expression of the love of God. As if there were no hell, then there would be no ultimate victory over evil. There would be no uh, evil being brought ultimately to an end. Evil would continue forever and ever. And now that is a truly awful uh, thought. And it's important to realize that the present and the future place uh, of hell is as sure as God's Word. It's as sure as every prophecy in the Bible. It is as sure as every promise in the Bible. It is sure as every teaching of Jesus in the Bible. It is as sure as the fact that Jesus was born in the city of Bethlehem in fulfillment of Micah's prophecy concerning the Messiah and so many uh, other things. The Bible teaches that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. All Scripture, including the teaching on this. 
and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And then Jesus absolutely authoritatively in this vein declared, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Now, if you sit here as a Christian this morning, uh, you might uh, wonder to yourself at this point, uh, I had hoped for something a little more uplifting uh, than this for Christmas time. All right. How about this for a meditation? At one time, you were headed toward that awful, righteous judgment in all of its horror, and now you're not. And now you're not. At one time, that judgment was in your future, and now it isn't. And what good does it do us? We have no hope of fully appreciating this Savior unless we can fully understand and appreciate what He has saved us from. And to take that great truth that you and I personally, individually, were, what we're going to ultimately, without this Savior, end up in that place, participate in that place, and to take that great truth this morning and the deliverance from all of that and believe that, to absorb that as a reality concerning ourselves personally, and then be grateful to the Savior who has saved you and me from that. Again, we cannot fully appreciate this Savior if we do not fully understand what He has saved us from. And if you sit here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, it's important for you to realize that no one ends up in hell based upon all of the sins that a person commits in life. All of those can be readily forgiven in an instant by God in trusting in Jesus Christ for that forgiveness. Now, the only reason a person ends up in hell as opposed to heaven is because of a lifelong rejection of Jesus, the Savior that God sent into the world and that He has sent to you personally. And there is an absolutely within our culture a complete loss concerning the seriousness of sin. A complete loss concerning the danger that every single person is in, uh, independent of this Savior. And to look at all of this in Christmas and the message of a Savior, all from the context uh, of this world. And it's something that you can take or leave or shrug your shoulders at, and it really has no uh, long-term uh, or even short-term implications. And how personally does heaven take the rejection of this Savior? However casually the world around us regards Him, the writer of the book of Hebrews puts it best. Hebrews chapter 10. 
For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. And anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy of who has trampled the Son of God underfoot and counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the grace of God? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so Christmas is not about a pretend Savior. It is about a real Savior sent to save us from real and eternal dangers that each of us face. You notice there in verse 11 that it talks about a Savior. There's only one. There's only one, but you only need one. There's only one uh, Savior because there is only one in human history that is qualified in the way that He is to be our Savior, and that is Jesus Christ Himself. God loves you, but don't force Him to choose between you and His Son. There's no need for that. Choose His Son this morning and be born again. And there will be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service, and they'd love to pray with you to, bring, uh, to invite the Savior into your life and then to him, for Him to bring the full scope of His salvation into your life as a miracle of the Holy Spirit that happens in an instant. Come forward after the service and allow us to pray for you and to pray with you. I ask the worship team if they'll, they'll come out now to lead us in uh, three worship songs this morning to close, to give us just a little bit of time here this morning uh, to meditate upon the greatness of this Savior and the greatness of the salvation that He has imparted to us.
behind your regrets and mistakes Come today, there's no reason to wait Jesus is calling Bring your sorrows and trade them for joy From the ashes a new life is born Jesus is calling Oh, come to the altar The Father's arms are open wide Forgiveness was bought with The precious blood of Jesus Christ You 
spread out your arms over empty hearts. Said, Let there be light into a dark and hopeless world. Your son was born. You made the world and saw that it was good. You sent your only son for you. Savior, 
I'd take him at his word and give Christ died to save me this I leave And in my heart I find a need Of him to be my savior That he will leave his place on high And come for sinful man to die You count it strange so once did I Before I knew my Savior My Savior loves, my Savior lives My Savior's always there for me Father, thank you so much for our Savior. Thank you for being so honest about our need, so honest about the consequences of rejecting Him. But Lord, thank you so much for the work of your Spirit and drawing us to Him. And Lord, how blessed you have made us in this life to say nothing of the one to come in Him. Thank you for Jesus today. We are humbled 
by the sacrifice that was involved both on your part and His for us to enjoy the life that we enjoy, this life of salvation, this life under the Lordship of this Savior. And we thank you this morning, Father, in Jesus' name, amen.